The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Our sermon passage is Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul, and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. And that ends the reading of God's word. Thank you, Lara. If I could, um, please allow me to pray before we begin. <clears throat> oh, Father, um, I, I lift my soul to you. Oh, God, in you uh, I trust. Uh, I pray that that would be true of me. That this this that would be uh, more than just words spoken, but that that would be um, the tenor of my heart and my spirit, uh, especially as I attempt to open your word and share it with others. I pray, God, that um, you would meet each of us in this place this morning, on this rainy day, on this humid day, that um, you would cut through all the static, that you would cut through all the distractions, that you would find your way, that your word would find your way into our ears, that it would find its way into our hearts, 
God, we pray that the things that are stated in this psalm, and there's so many very rich, profound truths here, we pray that they would somehow unlock our hearts and our minds this morning, that they would speak freely to us. We pray that the Lord Jesus would be high and lifted up in our midst. In his name we pray. Amen. So we have been up to two things as of late. Up to two things. We, uh, we've been in our summer sermon series in the Psalms, which is our annual tradition. So that's one thing. And then within that, we've also been considering spiritual practices, what some might call disciplines of grace. And so we have been looking into various Psalms, considering ways that we might exercise the muscles of our faith. And so, in a sense, you could say that we've been in a series within a series, <laughs> uh, this series within the Psalms. Now, in case you were not here last week for some reason, uh, last Sunday, we considered the topic of repentance. And so we considered ways that we might see repentance as a really good thing, as a, 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 a healthy um spiritual practice for us to engage in regularly as a way um, for us to exercise our faith. And we looked at Psalm 130 at that time, and I think that we covered a, a lot of good ground uh, as we did that. In fact, I, um, I had a lot of you approach me about last week's sermon, uh, enough that I kind of took notice of it. Many of you came to me after church. Some of you wrote me essentially telling me that it, it struck a chord with you, that it was helpful to you, which is awesome. That's just super encouraging to, to hear, just to know that God's word is getting traction with us. So I'm just super thankful to God for that. Another thing, in addition to that, I got several follow-up questions, questions about repentance, about what it means, what it might look like for us to be embracing repentance is a, is a lifestyle which highlights, in my mind, a desire to just better understand God's word, which, again, is, is awesome. So I was just very encouraged by this. And in response to all that, I would also say that I'm not terribly surprised by that. Those responses didn't surprise me because repentance is just one of those things. It's one of those spiritual practices that we probably don't talk about enough and that we probably don't fully understand as well as we could. In fact, upon further reflection, I, you know, I don't, personal reflection. I don't think that I talk about this enough, um, nor do I, I think that I understand it as well as I could or as well as I should. So um, I've been encouraged and challenged thinking about this as well. Okay. Now, that said, one thing that I'm fairly convinced of is that as we grow in, in, in our understanding and in our practice of repentance, that it's, it will be life-giving. It will be good. It is needed. It is a muscle of faith that, that needs to be exercised. And so this may be obvious, but um, 30, spending 35 minutes on, on a given Sunday on, on one topic, because this is what we've been doing, we've been just kind of like week by week, we've been you know connecting with a different topic. Um, doing that, um, it's going to be really difficult to thoroughly, robustly cover any given topic in 35 minutes, all right? And just, you know, hearing from you, just realizing that this has um, resonated with, with many of you, 
um, realizing that, you know, many things were said, but many things were not said last Sunday, I thought it would be a good idea for us to circle back on this and to try to just delve a little bit deeper into this topic. This message is entitled Embracing a Life of Repentance Part 2. And rather than looking at Psalm 130 again, we're, we're looking at Psalm 25, as you can see. And one more note on this before we get into it. Unlike last week, this time around, I do feel compelled to just really hone in on what, what is repentance. Rather than focusing on like, how, how do we embrace repentance as a lifestyle? I, I thought we would really spend time asking the question like, what is it? What is it? In fact, I just read something this past week in a class that I'm currently taking that recommended this idea. Um, this class is called New Testament Theology for Application. I had to read this article. In the article, the author was pointing out that when, when we do focus on like a, a particular passage and we really set out to understand it and to get its meaning, to get its context, that it tends to have like the natural byproduct of, of creating like applicational ideas almost instinctively. The, the, the most important, the hardest work that you can put in is just trying to understand it. And so I think we'll just make a test case out of that this morning. Um, see if if my learning is is correct. If it is, you know, if, if that clicks with you, report back to me. I'll report back to my professor. Maybe I'll get some extra credit or something like that. And so with that in mind, um, let me offer up a little bit of an outline for our psalm, for our message. Three things as it relates to repentance, trying to essentially ask the question like, what is it? What isn't it? So here we go. Um, first thing, first thing to consider, the disposition of repentance. So we're talking about like the posture of repentance, the, 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 the true attitude of it. What is it? What is it not? Secondly, we're going to consider the direction of repentance. And then the last thing that we're going to consider together is the director of repentance. So one more time on that, the disposition, the direction, and the director of repentance. So to begin with, this is where we're going to be spending a lot of our time on this first one, the disposition. Uh, here, I, just, I want to begin by doing what I failed to do last week, which I, what I should have done, but I didn't do, which is to try to start with just some kind of like uh, basic definition, something to work off of as it relates to repentance. So here's, here's a simple definition. Simply put, repentance involves a change of heart that results in us turning from our sin to God. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. Repentance involves a change of heart concerning our sin that results in us turning from our sin to God. And so there seems to be a few things going on there. There's, there's a reaction to my sin, okay? A realization, you might say. That might be another way of thinking about it. It's helpful. And then there's an action taken, a response to my sin, where I get turned around, it makes me think of uh, someone calling my name from behind me or something like that. Like, hey, Doug. And I'm like, this, this is the idea. To, to, be, to be turned around. To be essentially like awakened and to have your attention turned from your sin to God. Um, now, here's an important question following this, this whole idea. All right? I think this, it's essential that we ask this question. 
this gets to the, the component of disposition. When it comes to repentance, what is the emphasis? What are we talking about? What is the emphasis? What's the critical thing? What is it really about? And we did touch on this just a little bit last week, but let's try to like drill down on that question. What's the emphasis of repentance? And I'm just going to speak for myself on this. I'm going to actually try to um, share a bit of my own personal history on this, just like my own personal experiences with repentance, because I think that it... As I go all the way back and just kind of think through um, the last like two decades, essentially, um, I think it's very telling. Okay. Um, so, by the way, I'm 46. I became a Christian when I was 21 years old, and I would say that um, for the first maybe 10 years of my faith, during that time, the emphasis of repentance for me was sin. It was sin. And I, that probably should make sense, right? Um, when we hear the word repentance, if you know what that word means, that's probably, that may be the first thing that comes to your mind. The first word that pops into your mind is sin. Okay. And it should. Now, when it comes to sin, I think that there's a few ways that we can tend to respond to it when we identify it in our lives, when we pinpoint like, oh, okay, um, there's a problem here. So for starters, we can, there's, there's, here's one thing. We can underemphasize it. We can underemphasize sin in our life. So in other words, we can fail to soberly recognize the seriousness of our sin. And we can do this by, in all kinds of ways. We can do this by ignoring it. We can do this by rationalizing it, trivializing it, these sorts of things. But here's another. As odd as this may sound at first, particularly as it relates to repentance, I also think that we can overemphasize our sin. Does that strike you as sounding odd? We can, we can overemphasize our sin. Please give me some, a chance to explain this. Um, this is what I think I did for many, many years, for, for the first 10 years of my walk of faith. What do I mean? We can overemphasize our sin in the sense that we can make repentance all about us when it should really be about him. So during the first 10 years of my walk of faith, I would say that I'm, I, I most definitely did embrace a life of repentance. Like I was very serious about it. Um, it was a part of like my regular spiritual practices. I, I, I was, a, a, um, if I'm being totally honest with myself, I was in many ways obsessed with my sin. This is where the overemphasis comes in. I was obsessed with my sin in the sense that I was obsessed with eradicating it from my life. The reason that I was so committed to eradicating it from my life is because it made me look bad. It reflected poorly on me. It, you know, it, it didn't, it, it was getting the best of me. And I didn't like it. I didn't like the way that it was intruding into my life. I didn't like the way that it was humiliating me. I was, you know, after all, I was trying to follow Jesus. I was trying to prioritize him in my life. And so I felt that my sin was making me look bad and feel bad about the kind of Christian that I was. It's just like, come on, man. I felt like a failure. Okay. I felt like a phony. I wondered whether or not I was even a Christian at all at times. Now, I know that those of you who would call yourself a Christian this morning, that's never happened to you guys, but it would happen to me, okay? Where I'd be like, what is wrong with me? 
What's going on here? And again, this went on for the better part of 10 years. And if you're listening to what I, I'm saying here, that may not sound entirely bad, these, these things that I'm saying. After all, if Jesus lived for me, if Jesus died for me in order to eradicate the penalty of sin from my life so that I could be reconciled to him, so that I could walk with him, shouldn't I want to eradicate it from my life as well? This was much of my rationale. This is why it was such a serious practice in my life. And I think that that's right. However, what I'm really trying to get at here is the emphasis, right? What's the emphasis? What should be the emphasis of repentance when we think about it? The emphasis of my repentance, the most prominent like element in my repentance at this time, if I'm being honest, had very little to do with God. I didn't recognize it that way at the time, but that was what was going on. It was primarily about me. I didn't want to be a failure as a Christian. I didn't want to look like a phony. I didn't like what my sin said about me is someone who is supposed to be a follower of Christ. And so I hated my sin for that reason. I resented it because it made me look bad and feel bad. And ironically, this can have a lot of... If this is the way that you're operating, if this is your emphasis in the spiritual practice of repentance, it can have a lot of subtle and maybe even not so subtle effects on your life. If the emphasis is about me and my desire to have my spiritual act together, then think about this with me. If that's the case, I might feel very inclined to do what? To hide my sin from others. To keep it a secret. To not tell a soul. To keep duking it out in total isolation by myself, alone. And ironically and tragically, like... What kind of effect does isolation tend to have on, on us? Have you had this experience? What kind of effect does isolation tend to have on us as it relates to sin? It's bad. I don't know about you, but my experience, isolation tends to create an atmosphere for me, an atmosphere for me, where it's very conducive for me to kind of stay in a cycle of sin. It's like a perfect little ecosystem. The ecosystem. I try to overcome sin, and when I fail to do that, I feel like a failure. I don't want to be seen as a failure. So I put on a, a mask. I put on a, a, a mask of righteousness for those around me, and then I feel ashamed of that, and then I feel despairing, and then what do I do? I go into isolation, and I find comfort and refuge in my sin and the cycle continues and it just keeps going and it's like how do I get out I don't I don't know what to do I wonder if this sounds familiar to any of you if you're wondering in that experience I would try to repent I would try to practice repentance as best as I knew how. I was committed to it. Um, I would. It, here's what it would sound like, I think, at this time in my life. God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I don't know what's wrong with me. I know that this needs to stop. I know, I know. I'm sorry. 
I know that I need to do better than this. I'm trying. I'm going to try harder. I'll do better. Or I would just beat myself up, you know? Like I would, um, while asking for forgiveness, I would beat myself up, give myself a verbal flogging. I would, I would attempt to punish myself. Some kind of self-punishment. And it was, you know, a subtle, almost unconscious effort on my part to like be really, really, really sorry about my sin. Because if I was really, really sorry about it, you know, maybe God would be gracious to me and merciful to me. You know, if I'm really sorry enough, if I feel miserable enough, well, then maybe God will be appeased and forgive me. And then I can pick myself back up and move on and try again to be a real Christian. I'll get it. I'll get it. Hopefully I'll do better next time. I mean, can you relate to this? I hope that you can't. You know what I mean? I really do. I hope that you can't relate to anything that I'm saying right now. Here's the thing. You know, what I'm, what I was really doing in that situation was I wasn't turning from my sin to God. Do you see that? Like, what, what was I doing? I was turning from my sin to my own efforts at righteousness. This is where I think we can get the whole thing kind of confused, screwed up, get the emphasis all wrong. It's what I was doing. But that's not the definition that we started with. But that's what I was doing. I was turning from my sin to my own efforts at righteousness. What I described there, I'll be the first to tell you that it doesn't work. I, don't ask me why it took me 10 years to figure that out. I'm still figuring it out, by the way. Like, I don't have this completely figured out. But, th- but something's changed, though. I know that. Something's changed. That approach to repentance doesn't work. It fails. If somehow, let's just play pretend here, because there's different personalities in the room. If somehow, through pure willpower, and by the way, I'm sure that there are people in this room that really excel, like with willpower. I'm not one of those people, you know? But I mean, there's just some people that's just kind of like their makeup. Like if they just decide to do something, if if they're committed to it, like I'm going to stop doing this or I'm going to start doing this, like they just do it. They get stuff done. If, you know, if... If through pure willpower you manage to do this well in this way, turning from your sin to your own efforts at righteousness, what it will produce in you is self-righteousness and spiritual pride. I'm the real thing. I'm an upstanding Christian. Or, or flip side of that, if you take the same approach and you don't do it well, like you don't have the willpower thing going on, it will result in self-hatred and spiritual despair. Sometimes you will find yourself on both sides of that equation. Maybe one week you're up, one week you're down. Sometimes you'll find days in which you're up and down and up again and down again. So what do we need instead of that? Like that's not conducive to thriving in our faith with Christ. So what do we need? What, what was I missing? I guess is a good question. What was I missing? We need to turn from our sin, not to our own feeble efforts, but to God. This is precisely what, what David, he does here. Verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, is what he says. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And as others have pointed out, this is like the whole psalm in a nutshell. What he says right there, it's just like, that sums up. 
the whole thing. It's like his thesis statement. This is a statement of total abandon. David is throwing himself upon God, okay? He's not compartmentalizing anything. He's not like, okay, like, I, like I'm really having a hard time with these areas of my life, so this stuff, I'm, I'm going to submit this to you, Lord. I'm going to lift up this stuff, this stuff over here, keeping this to myself, kind of private, sorry. No, he lifts up his soul to God in abandon. Like a child throwing herself on the ground, David is throwing himself upon God and then entrusting himself to God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. And then look at verses four through seven. You know, this is this is just one long string of requests, and they all fit together. It, it's like it's like one shared thought that's going on here. He says, "Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths." Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So, you know, what is this about? What, what, these, these requests that come in verses 4 and 5, what are they about? Keep reading. I think that this tells us what they're about. Verse 6, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Remember mercy from last week? And your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. In other words, have mercy on me regarding the sins of my past. Have mercy on me regarding the sins of my present moment. But notice where he started, though, in verses 4 and 5. Notice where he started. Teach me. Make me know these things, God. Lead me. Show me the way. The disposition of repentance is utterly dependent upon God. Not self. The disposition of repentance is teachable. It's asking to be taught. It's asking to be helped and to be led and to be enlightened. It throws itself upon God. It says, without your thorough involvement in this situation, O oh God, there's, this is going nowhere fast. Unless you break in, I'm hopelessly stuck in an isolated ecosystem of my own sin. It's like madness. I can't find my way out. And so you got to get involved. You must lead me. You have to teach me. Show me the way. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So this is the disposition of repentance. It's teachable utterly dependent. Now the, the direction of repentance. This is our second point. This brings, brings us back to my question that I posed a little while ago. What is the emphasis of repentance? What should it be? And of course we know what it is. It's no secret. It's him, right? That's the emphasis. It's about turning from our sin to him. This is what it's all about. If we miss that, if, if, if we just perseverate on the turning away part, which we often do, we're going to miss everything. We're going to miss it. In a sense, you might even say that repentance is not about overemphasizing our sin. It's about actually de-emphasizing it. Don't misunderstand what I mean by that. I'm not saying under-emphasizing it, but de-emphasizing it. We do, you know, see how dire and destructive our sin is, but then we turn our backs to it. 
We defy it by turning to him. We de-emphasize it. We demote it because it's a counterfeit. We recognize what it is. We see it for what it is. It's a false friend. It makes huge promises. It never delivers. It's always luring us into isolation. So we de-emphasize it by turning our backs on it and turning to him. Our true life. Our true friend. How? By turning toward the true emphasis of repentance, which is him. You know, we often like to emphasize, I said this already, we often like to emphasize turning from when we should really emphasize the turning to. And this is actually the whole of the Christian life. Like, this is what the whole Christian life is actually about. It isn't just repentance. This is the all-pervasive, all-encompassing movement of faith, turning towards him. To turn towards him in all things and in all ways. And David knows this. Like, like he's, he's really dialed in here. Look down at verses 15 through 21. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. I mean, he's just listing off all kinds of stuff here. What is he doing? Is he just going down a checklist like, okay, distress, got it, check. Repentance, Got it. No. He's just lifting his soul to God. He's just like fleeing to God from all of the troubles, all of the distresses of his life. David here, he recognizes that our lives are complex. There are many things, many things that ail us. Our sins trouble us. The sins of others trouble us. We have our various afflictions and distresses. Sometimes it's difficult to parse these things out and figure out what's what. What's heads, what's tails? We don't know. But where we direct all of these things never changes in all things. Good, bad, ugly, our sins, the sins of others that have afflicted us, our joy and our grief, whatever we carry within ourselves, we turn toward God, we carry these things to God, and we lay these things at God's feet, and we say, in you I trust. Where else can I go? To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. This is, the, this is intended to be the, the general tenor of our lives. It gets better than this, actually, if, you, if you're paying attention to this psalm. Because he doesn't leave us to ourselves in these sorts of things. David has been making all kinds of requests here. Lead me, teach me, right? Break in, please get involved. But then look at verses 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way, it says. This is bringing us into our last point, the director of repentance. So, like, not only is David saying, like, would you teach me? We're being told, like, he does it. He he does lead. He does teach. Well, who? He instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. If you look at this word humble here, 
It's interesting. It's the same word that is used in verse 16 and 18 when we read affliction. So in verse 16, when it says, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. That's the same word that's being used as humble in verse 9. In verse 18, when it says, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. That's the same root word that's being used as humble in verse 9. So you could read this as he leads the poor and afflicted in what is right and teaches the poor and afflicted his way. Okay, And so what we're being told here is that God comes alongside of sinners. God comes alongside of the poor and the afflicted. Why should we turn to him from our sin? Because he's the friend of sinners. Verse 14, the friendship of, of the Lord belongs to those who fear him. We talked about what this meant last week. This is talking about like a, re a relational reverence a relational connection with who he is. The friendship of the Lord belongs to those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. We should turn to him because he inclines himself to us. I mean, it's just a, a crazy little trajectory that we get here when we read of all the ways that he teaches and instructs. He teaches sinners. He teaches the poor and afflicted. He teaches those who are relationally reverent to him. And, he, and he's their friend. He's the friend of sinners. In other words, God is gracious. I mean, that's what this adds up to. God is gracious. This was the thing that I was missing for 10 years and that I still miss regularly. It's interesting. If you go back, He's saying all the right things, right? And then he says, verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me for I'm lonely and afflicted. It's like, I know that these things are true. I said it. But now I need to, I need to experience this, Lord. Turn to me. This, I mean, this tells us why this needs to be a spiritual practice, why this needs to be a discipline of grace, because like, our feelings don't always line up with what is true. And so we have to bring them under the canopy of, of, of the truth that God tells us. Turn, I know you're gracious. Turn to me and be gracious. I'm, I'm lonely, Lord. Like, without you getting involved, I'm just going to turn to my sin again. I'm just going to go find refuge elsewhere. Please, come through. Meet me. So this was the thing that I was missing. This is the thing for 10 long years I was attempting to get by without. It was God's grace. I didn't know that it was the thing that I was missing, but it was the thing that I was missing. I was ready to give up. I was like, I stink at this. I stink at being a Christian. I'm just done. And so I didn't realize it, but it, it, full of despair, weary and worn out with my own sin, I was, I was in the most perfect condition possible to receive his grace. And he directed me to it. I couldn't bring myself to it. I didn't know how to get there. But he directed me to it, and that totally changed the entire experience, my entire understanding of what repentance is about. You can read elsewhere in the scriptures. Romans 2.4 says that it's God's, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's Romans 2.4. So it's just like repentance isn't painful, 
It doesn't lead to sorrow. It delivers us from those things. It's his kindness to us. In Acts chapter 3, we read this, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. This is Peter preaching, Repent therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's good. It's life-giving. He's directing us towards it. Luke chapter 15, we get this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's life-giving. It's a gift. It's sweet. It's something that we need to engage more and more. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, I pray that you would uh, take my feeble words and this offering, and I pray that you would, um, as you do with so many other things, like bread and fish, I pray that you would multiply it, that you would make more out of it than, than what it really is, but that, that it would be your word that does it. I pray that your word would rise to the surface, that it would be true bread, that it would be true wine, that it would be true nourishment for our souls this morning. We thank you for the gift of repentance, and it's in Jesus' name we give thanks. Amen.